everybody. This is episode five of Ether Hour. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined, of course, by Dimitri Kalyagin. We have a tremendous guest this morning, our first guest on Ether Hour. I think you're really going to like this episode. Uh, Dimitri, I'll let you introduce him, but uh, before you do that, how are you doing? Doing great, Conrad, and excited to have Father Joseph Gleason here with us again on World War Now, but on the, for the first time on Aether Hour, and a special episode dedicated to, of course, his craft and the project ongoing at the moment, the great book, Cutting Into the Lies and Deceit, of course, sewn since, you know, since time and memoriam, since the 19th century, and probably prior on the subject of evolution and shedding light on Orthodox creationism. Father Joseph Gleason, of course, from hailing to us from the Russian Federation. So it is an honor to have him here on with us on in the fifth episode. Father Joseph, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. Thank you guys for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. No, it's great to have you here. And we want to be sure to have all the links in the description to the Indiegogo project for your translation of Father Constantine Buffet's work on creation and evolution. You got some tremendous numbers and feedback in the first few weeks of it being released, which is really awesome. So if you want to maybe tell everybody what the project is, what issues it highlights, why you think it's important for it to be English and to be translated into English, and uh, kind of the feedback that you've gotten so far and the the tremendous numbers, we're we're all very encouraged. Oh, absolutely! It's a real blessing in Moscow. Father Konstantin Bufeyev, before becoming a priest, he was actually a scientist himself. He got an advanced degree in geology and uh, worked a number of years in that field later became an Orthodox priest, and he's been an Orthodox priest now for over 20 years. And he just he has an amazing mind, amazing work ethic. And so he's really been able to bring together, you know, in a, in a cohesive and intelligent way, the, the world of theology from an Orthodox Christian perspective, and also the world of scientists, you know, with his scientific background. And, you know, obviously, you know, when, he, when we think of Orthodoxy, and its voice, what it has to say about creation versus evolution. You know, most of us immediately think of Father Seraphim Rose. And, you know, he certainly put, he, he certainly had some excellent material on, on the subject. Unfortunately, he was not able to completely polish it and finish everything, you know, before his, his untimely repose, his unexpected repose, at least to us. And, uh, but I'm very thankful that, you know, that after his repose, they were able to take all those works, put them together and put out, uh, you know, a very good book on the subject. But the difference with Father Constantine is that he's had, you know, over two decades to work on this, to really compile everything together and to just have a, a well-edited, polished three-volume set. It's nearly 1,400 pages, you know, all the, all the three books combined. And... Uh, you know, it's just, it's just, it really is a masterpiece. I mean, you know, and in addition to that, you know, in the 45 years that have passed since the repose of Father Seraphim, you know, a lot's happened in the scientific world. So these books do contain a lot of the things that Father Seraphim Rose was well aware of, but there's so much more. It has a lot of the more contemporary, you know, looks into, uh, you know, for example, the work of Dr. Stephen Meyer, the, the work of Dr. Michael Behe and his work on you know, irreducible complexity and, and a lot of others. And so it just it brings all of this together into three volumes. And the first book, uh, it focuses on the Bible 
and the church fathers and, uh, you know, and also the services of the church. And so it takes a really detailed look at what does scripture teach about creation and the origin of the world and the origin of man and what have the Orthodox Christian saints taught on the subject for the past 2000 years. Uh, the second book, he focuses specifically on the science. As I mentioned, he talks about, you know, what Dr. Stephen Myers found, Dr. Behe and many others. And it's also interesting, he spends a portion of the second book looking not only at the science of Darwin and Darwinism and you know, neo-Darwinism, but he also looks at the person himself. And, you know, you get to learn a little bit about what's going on by looking at the writings, not, not just the books that Darwin wrote, but like the personal correspondence that he wrote privately to people while he was still alive. You know, for example, one of the things that really stuck with me, of course, he did not admit this in Origin of Species or in The Descent of Man, but in a lot of his private correspondences, he openly admitted that he had completely lost his faith and that he did not believe in the existence of God. And in one particular situation, he actually in his personal correspondence, he wrote to a friend, and he, he admitted, he said, if I just openly told people I don't believe in God, well, they wouldn't listen to me. They would not uh, be persuaded. But by teaching this theory of evolution, uh, it chips away at the foundation. It uh, helps, you know, slowly and effectively undermine their belief in God over time. And he seemed rather pleased with himself about this. So, you know, people can argue all they want, saying, oh, it's compatible, you can believe in God, you can be a theistic evolutionist. But I still think it's very interesting that the person best known for popularizing, you know, in the modern world, popularizing the idea of, you know, molecules to man evolution uh, is someone who admitted his desire and intent to undermine faith. And then the third book in the series, Father Constantine focuses on a lot of the critics. He focuses on various theistic evolutionists who, who try to square the circle and say, well, you can have belief in God and you can still have, you know, still have this, you know, man being descendant from ape or, you know, from an ape-like creature. And, uh, and he very effectively and in, in detail responds to a number of these arguments. So we have this fantastic masterpiece published in Russian, but of course the vast majority of people in America, in Australia, in England, and Canada, they don't read Russian. And so for the past several months, my sons and I have been reading through you know, these books, and I've just become so impressed with this three-volume set that I said, this really needs to be available in English. This really needs to be made available to uh, really to everyone, not only to Orthodox Christians, but to Catholics, to Protestants, to everyone who is interested in this particular, you know, in this particular study of regarding origins. So I think it's a very important work. So I invited Father Constantine over, got to know him, met with him. We really hit it off and he gave a blessing. You know, he, uh, he gave full permission to do this translation project. And we've been able to get a team of people together willing to work on it, to get it translated, to 
uh, once that work is done to do the editing, you know, put everything, type setting, get it into published form. And it's a big project. You know, even a 10-page document in Russian, it's not trivial to get that into very good, accurate English. And this is nearly 1,400 pages. So we, we created a, a fundraiser on Indiegogo about two weeks ago. And the initial $22,000 just for translating the first book uh, was raised within the first three days. So it was just overwhelming response, about two or three days. I forget the, it was just really quick. And so we said, wow, okay, you know, people are really responding. Once the translation is done, we're going to need to do the typesetting and the editing. And so it's ready to actually put in book form and print it. And so, you know, that second goal is another 10600 and we're $1,000 short of meeting that already. So just in the first two weeks, we've basically raised about a third of the overall goal. It should take about approximately $100,000 to do everything, translate very accurately all three books, do all the editing, do all the typesetting. And it's kind of a unique translation project. So, you know, if this were just you know, like a children's novel or, uh, you know, something about gardening, it would be a lot simpler. But you have to find translators who are not only fluent in Russian and English, you have to find people that are familiar enough with the very specific theological vocabulary and also familiar with the scientific vocabulary because, you know, this is a, it can get to be a pretty deep, heady topic when you get onto certain points. You know, you talk about irreducible complexity, you talk about RNA and DNA and nucleotides. A lot of these are terms that just your average translator may not be familiar with. Same thing with, you know, when you get into the theological topics. So it's a big project. It's a complicated project, but I think it's really, really important. And, you know, things have gone so well. We've actually already had one chapter, <laughs> uh, one of my favorite chapters from one of the books translated into English already. And we just, uh, we just published that online just to give everybody a sample of it. And it's actually, uh, it's a book review, I'm sorry, a film review that Father Constantine did of this amazing Russian film that just came out a few years ago called Sunstroke, uh, Solnechny Udar. And it's, it's really amazing. I mean, it's a, it's a film in Russian, which we have made available with English subtitles. But you watch this film and it shows you, here's what Russia was before the revolution, an Orthodox Christian country with an Orthodox Christian czar and here's russia after the revolution you know where the where the government's basically a bunch of lying cheating murderous uh, atheists and one of the main characters keeps asking throughout the film he says how did this all happen how did we get here what caused this and i'm not going to give away you know the the climax of the movie but i will say they make it very clear that darwin and his theory of evolution had a great deal to do with why this happened to how we ended up with literally atheistic mass murderers running, you know, running an entire country. So I hope that, uh, you know, people will, will log on to the, the Substack blog that talks about this project that talks about the translation project. And we'll take a look at this particular film review and we'll even 
you know, watch the film because it's pretty good in its own right. Absolutely. I think what struck me at least when I first heard about the project was just how useful and how um, practical it was. It, it has a direct utilitarian approach to the Orthodox life. And from any perspective, from a perspective of a parent, from a perspective of a, a pastor at a church, a priest, um, in even in a theological seminarian context for uh, English-speaking seminaries to have access to a text such as this so they could quickly go and find particular citations or even refutations of arguments that say would come up in uh in a very you know in a professional academic context but also in in terms of families you know people in the western world and the english-speaking world they do still send their children to some of them send them send their children to public schools private schools and the education provided there of course is directly directly builds upon this uh unfortunately a wrong world view at least in the ter in terms of sciences and biology which states you know uh, kind of has this underpinning hypothesis that all humans originated from you know uh, this uh, initial matter and then that matter of course turned into monkeys and so forth and so on so the darwinian theory at least the hypothesis has been so prevalent in at least in western world in the education system and as well as in the russian federation unfortunately after the revolution as you mentioned and i i've noticed over the years at least in my interaction with orthodox folks online um just a lack of a i guess a central text besides father seraphim rose's book which was again as coroner had said very hard to access there wasn't a central text of sorts besides of course unless someone was very very well studied in in, I suppose, the Orthodox tradition, would he have access to all the citations, to all the particular answers, to all these various questions relating to creationism and evolution? And finally, that text is available to us, and we can perhaps address some of these uh, false beliefs uh, as to, you know, that evolution uh, is, is compatible with the Orthodox mindset and the Orthodox lifestyle, a traditional worldview, and that it could be deemed a theologumenon right? Which I suppose the question is, Father, like the Orthodox position relating to evolution and creation, right? There's this uh, dichotomy and, uh, you know, this sort of, you know, it can only be one of the two. Why can't this be a theologumenon from your perspective? Um, and yeah, if you could maybe elaborate on that a little bit. Well, absolutely. I mean, and it's a fair question. I mean, you know, somebody that has not, you know, read the scientific literature that has not read uh, the patristic literature that talks about this. There's a lot of people out there that have a lot of misconceptions. They think, well, what's important is that God created the world, that God created man. Well, who cares how he did it? You know, who cares whether he did it in an instant from clay or whether he did it over a long period of time through a process? Eh, the only important thing is that we're here and that we love God and that we all tr love each other and, and the details don't matter much. But this is just really, really far from the truth. We talk about the saints, for example, you know, the saints of the church that are supposed to guide our spiritual, you know, our, our spiritual understanding of how to understand Scripture and how to understand our life in Christ in the church. And a lot of people, you know, dismiss them either because they think they had nothing to say on the subject, or because they say, well. You know, Darwin didn't publish Origin of Species until 1859, and almost all of the church's saints came prior to that, so they just didn't have the information to deal with that we have now. And it's a, it's 
it's another way of saying we're so much smarter today than they were then, which is, as one as one author put it, that's just chronological snobbery. But uh, <laughs> you know, the truth is, first of all, it's a myth. It is a myth that Darwin invented the theory of evolution. That's very, very far from the truth. The the pre-Socratic Greek philosophers. So I'm talking even before Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. The pre-Socratic philosophers already were writing and theorizing about, you know, mankind and life originating from uh, life forms in the sea, and even esoteric things like parallel universes, you know, things that we think only modern physicists have uh, postulated. They were already talking about it in ancient Greece, centuries before Christ, the apostles. Aristotle, you know, the famous philosopher, he actually, he wrote about some of these things. And if he had been in favor of it, you know, the, no doubt the Darwinists would be hailing him as their, you know, their great philosopher. But he was, he was rejecting a lot of these things. So they kind of hush that up and don't talk about it a lot. But there are numerous philosophers and uh, people throughout history that have postulated this idea that, you know, much earlier in the Earth's history, there were only, quote unquote, simple life forms. And that later on, they developed into these more complex life forms. That was nothing new with Darwin. So a number of people in the church for thousands of years have been aware of this crazy idea and they have rejected it. Now what Darwin did, he simply proposed a, a mechanism. He basically suggested that, you know, animals generally reproduce way more than the resources are able to support. And that, you know, he proposed this idea of natural selection, survival of the fittest, and he said, with this mechanism, maybe we could explain how that a amoeba might eventually turn into a fish and the fish might turn into a rat and the rat might turn into a monkey and the monkey might turn into a man. But the idea itself, this, that this, you know, quote unquote evolution would occur, it's been around for thousands of years. It's a very ancient heresy. And an interesting thing, you know, a, a number of the saints that have spoken most openly against evolution are Russian saints. Now, a number of Greek saints and other saints have as well, but one of the reasons I'm so excited about this translation project is that we're going to be taking some of the writings of some Russian Orthodox saints, canonized saints, that have spoken very directly against Darwinism. And some of these saints, you know, they came after Darwin, late 1800s, early 1900s, so not only were they against the idea of evolution, but they actually knew about Darwin and they rejected him. Uh, St. Theophan the Recluse, uh, some of his books have already been translated into English, uh, some have not. And he's one of my favorite. I mean, he just comes right out and he calls a spade a spade. I, I'm going I'm to read, I, I have an English translation of some of his quotes here. And St. Theophan says, we now have many nihilists, natural scientists, Darwinists, spiritualists, and Westerners in general. Well, do you think the church would keep silent, would not have given her voice, would not have condemned and anathematized them if there was something new in their teaching? On the contrary, 
there would certainly have been a council, and all of them with their teachings would have been anathematized. To the present synodicon of orthodoxy, only this paragraph would be added. To Buchner, Feuerbach, Darwin, Renan, Hardeck, and all their followers, anathema. Of course, there is no need for a special council, nor for any addition. All their false teachings have long been anathematized. At the present time, not only in provincial cities, but in all places and churches, the rite of orthodoxy should be introduced and performed, and all the teachings contrary to the word of God should be collected and announced to everyone, so that everyone knows what to fear and which teachings to run away from. Another one I'll pick out from Russia, it's one of my favorites also, is uh, St. Luke, the doctor of, you know, from Crimea. A very skilled scientist, a very skilled surgeon, very brilliant man, medical doctor. And he wrote very explicitly about Darwinianism and about evolution in the early 1900s. St. Luke says, Darwinism, presuming that man through evolution developed from a lower species of animals and is not a product of the creative act of the divine, turned out to be only an assumption, a hypothesis already outdated for science. This hypothesis is recognized as contradicting not only the Bible, but also nature itself, which jealously strives to preserve the purity of each species and does not even know the transition from a sparrow to a swallow. The facts of the transition of a monkey into a man are unknown. And so you have, you know, you just have saint after saint after saint after saint, even in recent times, you know, after Darwin, who have explicitly in a consensus, in a unanimous consensus, come together and said, this is heresy, this is false teaching, this is not true. And, you know, in particular, you know, St. Luke of Crimea, he himself is scientifically trained, he himself was a medical doctor. And so we have this testimony from the saints themselves saying, this is important. This is something that, you know, this is something where it matters what you believe, and if you pick the wrong thing, you're picking a uh, you're picking a heresy. You're picking something that is theologically false. But it's still, you know, we still need to ask the question. Okay, but what damage does it do? <laughs> so let's let's say we don't know about these saints. You know, we're not willfully going against the church, but we were raised in, in a you know public school that was trying to inculcate us into atheism or at least into secular humanism, which is a, another name for the same thing. And in, in so doing, we kind of soaked up this idea of evolution. But then we became Christians. We realized that we believe in Christ. We want to follow Christ. And so we're at tension in ourselves. And so we asked the question, well, what difference does it make? Why can't I just be a theistic evolutionist? And it's really sad, but I've read even you know some writings by not saints, but some people who are in the Orthodox Church who have, you know, said these types of things. They're, oh, does it really matter? I, I, I read one thing a few years ago where a guy was saying, well, it doesn't really matter whether Adam and Eve were actual historical people or not. It's, you know, we have a lot of good that we can learn from their story either way. And what I, what I really try to impress on people is that you cannot just take the first 
11 chapters of Genesis and rip them out of your Bible and keep the rest intact. It's like a, it's like a quilt or a shirt or a piece of clothing that you pull one thread and you pull and you pull and you pull and you end up unraveling the entire thing and it all falls apart. So for example, let's say that we agreed with the evolutionists that, you know, there are billions of years of death and bloodshed and fighting and for just eons of time. And that fairly recently in the earth's history, you finally have the community of primates that were basically the proto homo sapiens, the proto humans. And there was no single Adam. There was no single Eve, but you just have this community of highly evolved, intelligent ape-like creatures. What does that do to our Bible? What does that do to our New Testament? What does that do to the church? Well, let's skip the entire Old Testament. Let's turn over in your Bibles to the most important part of the New Testament, which is the Gospels, and open up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. And there you find one of the two genealogies for Christ. And it goes back predictably, you know, so you find out Christ was a son of David, you find out that Christ was a son of Abraham, but it doesn't stop there. It goes back to Terah, goes back to Enoch, goes back and goes back and goes back until finally you get to Adam. And so in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, it talks about Adam as being an actual, real, historical person and says that Jesus is a direct descendant of him. Now, what are the implications if there was no Adam? You know, imagine if, if he's just some sort of a mythical creature, if he's just some sort of a storybook hero. You know, what if? What would you think if you turned over into a part of the Bible and it said Superman and Wonder Woman got together and they had a baby? And after... 42 generations, uh, their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson was the Savior who saved the whole world, and they named him Jesus. Well, you'd say, well, I know Superman's not real. I know Wonder Woman's not real. So any of their kids <laughs> logically must be mythical as well. And, you know, it's really sad. There's a number of people that, I mean, I recently had sitting at my table uh, somebody that I met from uh, Western Europe, and you know, he he said he was really inspired by he was really inspired by Jordan Peterson, and he decided that he must be a Christian, and that he felt like Orthodoxy was probably the best type of Christian to be, and so he wanted to join the church, and so I started asking him some questions, and it pretty quickly came out. He said that he didn't really think it was an important thing whether like if you took a time machine back in time with a video camera, whether there actually was a historical person named Jesus or not. He said that, that kind of wasn't the point. You know, whether things actually happened in history, that's not the point. What matters is there's this powerful story that touches into the archetype and uh, teaches you how to become better, how to become a better person. And this man, he's still a friend of mine. I don't have any ill will against him. But I informed him, you have to actually believe in the historical accuracy of the Christian story to become a Christian. 
you have to believe that Jesus in real history actually lived, died, rose again, actually is the son of God and the son of man. You know, so this is not just a hypothetical what if, this is a, a real life practical question. Is Jesus real? Is he who he says he is? Is he who scripture says he is? Or is he this mythical hero that is the descendant of mythical heroes? It matters whether it's historical or not. And the moment you say that Adam and Eve were not real, the moment you say Adam and Eve were just Superman and Wonder Woman, you have suddenly changed the Bible and the entire Christian religion into a different kind of book. Now it's ideas to be followed. It's no longer history telling you who you are and what's coming in the future. Another example of how it matters is, you know, what did Christ come to do? Everybody says, well, he came to save us from our sins so that we don't go to hell. Yes, that's part of what he came to do. It's a part of it. It's a really important part. <laughs> it's a part that matters to me a lot. But in the New Testament, you go to the book of Romans, uh, written by St. Paul, the apostle, and look in chapter 8. And St. Paul talks about the fact that Jesus came not only to redeem humans, human beings, but he came to redeem the entire cosmos. You know, Scripture teaches in the New Testament that Adam's sin had such a powerful impact on the entire created order, to the entire cosmos, that all of creation is subjected to futility because of this. You know, so where do we get the second law of thermodynamics and everything running down? Thanks, Adam. You know, if you, if you, you know, if you want to know why is there death and destruction and pain and suffering in the world, go look in the mirror. <laughs> you know, if, if, you're, if you're a sinner, you know, the, the problem is with you. And uh, so each one of us, myself included, you know, we contribute to the problem through our sin. And the first sinner among us was our great-great-great-great-grandfather, Adam, a real historical person. So his sin brought about a fall, you know, a, a death and a destruction to the entire created order. And Christ, the second Adam, he came not only to redeem our souls, not only to redeem our bodies and to give us resurrection, but to redeem the entire universe, literally to change the entire created order. So it's not only Christians that resurrect at the end and live forever in heaven with, with God, but there is a new heavens and a new earth. You know, it's like earth itself is resurrected after the judgment. And so at that point, there's no more suffering, no more death, no more pain for the, for the former things that passed away. You know, and so, so that's where you get the, you know, the, and they lived happily ever after to the story. The Bible begins in a garden, it ends in a city. It begins with the tree of life, it ends with the tree of life. You just read the first few chapters of Genesis, and then read the last few chapters of Revelation, and you find out that, you know, we finally get home again. <laughs> we finally get back to that peace and that intimacy with God and with each other that we began with. And the story comes full circle. And how does it radically change that whole story? of the fall and of redemption in Christ, if you say, oh, no, 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 Adam had nothing to do with it. For billions and billions of years, animals were fighting 
and and torturing and tormenting and killing and eating each other. And there was death and bloodshed for billions of years. And God saw that it was good. You know, that's what we would have to say. Those first few chapters of this where God creates this and God creates that and God creates this and God creates that. And if this is just vast ages of time and God pronounces and God saw that it was good. You know, does God see that it's good when a, a cat is tormenting and torturing a mouse for half an hour before it finally kills it and eats it? You know, is that what God saw was good <laughs> in the first few chapters of Genesis? Uh, does God see that it's good when a, you know, when a, a wasp lays its, you know, stuns a, a caterpillar and lays its eggs in it and then the babies hatch out and while the caterpillar is fully alive, the babies eat the entire body except for the nervous system. And then the last thing they eat is the nervous system. You know, that, that doesn't sound like something I would look at and say, oh, this is very good. And yet, theistic evolutionists would have us believe that for billions of years, God, you know, his perfect plan for the universe was to create this world, world just filled with torture and death and that countless trillions of individual beings uh, lived and, uh, you know, got disease and got eaten and got consumed and died and their dead bones, you know, turned into fossils for billions of years before finally man comes on the scene. And, you know, whether man sinned or did not sin really had no impact on any of that. You know, in what sense can God redeeming man heal that? In what sense can God redeeming man heal the universe? If the universe being like that, tooth and claw and nail and suffering and death, if that was God's plan from the beginning, if that's what God said was very good, it really just boggles the mind and doesn't make any sense. It doesn't stop here, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go on for hours, but uh, these are two examples of why it matters so very deeply. A third thing that I will throw in is just practically what we have seen. You know, I already mentioned that movie that looked at the Russian Revolution before and after. And, and I, again, I'm not going to give away the, the that important final scene of the movie, but I will say this much. There is a very central character in the movie, in the movie Sunstroke, who he's very good, he's very kind, he's a wonderful person, and he believes in God, and he does his best to live in obedience to Christ. And then... Because of Darwin, because of the teaching of evolution, uh, he eventually decides that he does not believe in God. And if he doesn't believe in God, then he also does not believe in the Ten Commandments. So he does not believe that he needs to honor his father and mother. Uh, he doesn't need to honor his bishop. He doesn't need to honor his priest. He doesn't need to honor the czar, the king. And so he joins forces with the atheistic mass murdering Bolsheviks and he becomes a mass murderer himself, this one particular person. You know, that's a very practical and horrifying consequence. You know, you think of you think of Dostoevsky, think of uh, the brothers Karamazov, and that one particular brother that says, you know, if there is no God, then everything is permitted. If there is no God, then everything is permitted. Okay, so what? If I rape, so what if I kill? So what if I go into my the deepest, darkest part of my most wicked fantasies? Well, there is no God, so who's to say it's even wicked? 
who is there to judge me? I have no judge. I, I can just follow pleasure. I can do what I will. And as long as I have enough power to get away with it, then one day I'm going to die. I'm going to rot. The worms are going to eat me. I won't think or feel anything more. And after committing all of this wickedness, I will never face judgment for it. Now, that's a very powerful motive to do some very wicked things. I know there's, you know, I, I'm it's sad to say that in my life, there's different things, even when I was a child, that I was tempted to do. And then I decided not to, because I thought, well, <laughs> dad and mom are going to make sure there's consequences for that. And likewise, in adulthood, there are many people in the world who contemplate very wicked actions, and then they never carry them out because they say, well, I'm going to have to face the judgment. I'm going to have to face God. The moment you remove God from the equation or, you know, in, in a theistic evolutionary universe, uh, God is maybe present, but he's distant, you know, sort of like the deist God. He wound up the world with natural laws and he just lets it go and he doesn't interfere. That's very, that's not very different from a world that has no God at all. So practically, when you remove God from being imminent, when you remove God from being immediately present and interacting with the world now and today, then you no longer have a judge. And when you no longer have a judge, then you remove the motive that a lot of people have to be righteous, that a lot of people have to put their passions in check and to put their sin in check. And, uh, you know, we've seen the result of that. The, you know, in Russia over the past 100 years, you know, particularly during the 74 years of communism, there were more martyrs for the Christian faith than there were in the 1,900 years prior. You know, so take everything you ever saw in Fox's Book of Martyrs, everything you've read in the Prologue of Ord, everything you've read in any Synexarion of the martyrs and of the saints. And there were more people who shed their blood for Christ just during those 70 years of communism in Russia than there were in nearly 2,000 years before that. That's a pretty big consequence. That's a pretty big consequence. And so we need to be, we need to be very, very wary, you know, fearful even of the horrific consequences that can ensue when you take millions and millions of innocent children and you fill their minds with this idea that you are not created by God. You're nothing special. Your grandfather was an amoeba in some primordial pool in, you know, billions of years ago. When a child and later an adult comes to believe that that's where they came from, that they're just some cosmic accident, that there is no loving God who created them and there is no judge who will judge them, uh, it can radically make a difference in, in the political life and in the just practical day-to-day -day life of an entire nation. And so there's, there's many, many, many more things we could cover, but those are the three big examples I would give of why it matters that we really need to take this seriously and not just say, oh, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can believe in, the, in uh, evolution and you can believe in Christianity. No, they really are mutually exclusive. And if you're going to be a faithful Christian, there really is no place for molecules to man evolution in that. Oh, I think 
again, in orthodoxy, it's there are some people that like to perpetuate the idea that you can believe both. I've been in some situations where I won't name any names where people are asking and a priest answered that, you know, well, we don't like kind of just being wishy-washy on the answer. And then the immediate question is, well, what about death before the fall? And his answer was that he didn't know, which I think if, you know, you're getting asked these sort of basic questions as a teacher of the faith that, and you immediately are on the, I didn't know, you should maybe decide to stick more firmly with the tradition of the church. And for people in English, if they want to read anything before this wonderful works, these wonderful works are translated, I definitely recommend Cosmos and Transcendence by Wolfgang Smith. There's a whole chapter in there that is one of the best refutations I've read of Darwin and evolution. Uh, but it's so great that we're going to get this from an Orthodox perspective. And Father Joseph, I'm curious, you mentioned Russia and, you know, how Bolshevism was so influenced by by this Darwinian nihilistic worldview. And, you know, we see the fruits of it so much today in America with, you know, transgender shooters at Christian schools and other such nonsense. But I, I want to know, like today, as Russia is re-Christianizing, what like if you were to be outspoken against evolution and a creationist, what what's the public perception of that? What do people think kind of what's the public zeitgeist there about this question? Because I know in America you hear certain Orthodox people say that whether you bring up something like this, that oh, you're trying to Protestantize the faith. And like, you know, they bring this up on this issue, and whenever you try to not be like a like a racial Marxist either, suddenly you're a you're Protestant you're white Protestantizing the faith or evangelicalizing the faith if you want to believe in creation. I'm curious as to how the perception is in Russia. Well, it's uh, it's funny that you should mention that because in a completely different context, um, I had that uh, charge recently. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you the story because it it fits perfectly with what we're talking about as well. You know, as you know. All the way back in the fourth and fifth centuries, Saint John Chrysostom, one of the the most centrally influential saints in the history of the Orthodox Church. <laughs> I mean, he's the one that gave us the the liturgy that most Orthodox use, you know, the world over most of the year. And anyway, Saint John Chrysostom preached exegetically, book by book, through almost the entire New Testament. And we have, you know, in fact, that's where we get his name. You know, he was just Father John at the time, and then Bishop John. But that, that name Chrysostom, or in Russian, Zlataust, it's golden mouth. You know, it was a nickname because it's like pure gold coming from his mouth all the time, pure gold. And so he was so eloquent, such a fantastic Bible teacher. And to this day, you know, he's renowned not only by the Orthodox, but by the Catholics, by Protestants. And in fact, no doubt both of you and you know, most of our listeners are very well familiar with this uh, set of books that came out over a century ago, the Anti-Nicene and the Post-Nicene Fathers. And it's, you know, this very distinctive uh, set of books, about 20 or 30 books that, you know, cover a couple of shelves on many, many Christians' libraries, including my own. And you walk up to it, and several of the volumes, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages, and it's just one sermon after another. Hundreds of pages of sermons by St. John Chrysostom preaching verse by verse by verse through the whole new testament and you know of course this is over a thousand years before there were any protestants <laughs> thousand years before martin luther a thousand years before john calvin or any of these guys and it was fairly recently i was having a conversation with a particular orthodox person particular person in the church and he was kind of talking as if really preaching is just not that important. Really, all we need is the liturgy. We don't really 
need to be preaching the word of God. That's kind of this secondary thing. And, and then he went even farther with it. And he said, really, you know, those who really put an emphasis on preaching, you know, that's, that's kind of Protestant. And so I just looked at him and I said, do you think John St. John Chrysostom was Protestant? <laughs> uh, he, he didn't like that very much when I said that. And, uh, you know, of course he knew who St. John Chrysostom was. And, and then our conversation took a different turn at that point, but it's kind of the same thing with this. I mean, you can go back long, you know, I, I already pointed out a couple of very prominent Russian saints who very directly spoke against Darwin, but there's so many more, so many more. And I don't have it right in front of me, but just, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have it perfectly memorized, but you're surely you're familiar with the Saint Ephraim the Syrian. You know, we're, we're in Lent right now. And so every day we're praying this prayer the prayer of St. Ephraim, you know, Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, the spirit for power and idle talk, and so on. Anyway, the same St. Ephraim, and again, this was well over a thousand years ago. He's one of the early fathers. St. Ephraim explicitly said, no one should think that the six-day creation is an allegory. Short, sweet, and to the point. You know, just one sentence. <laughs> no one should think that the six-day creation is an allegory. You know, th there's an explicit, unambiguous, clear, young earth creationist statement from one of our most revered saints in the church over a thousand years ago. You know, we can find similar statements from, you know, from St. Basil the Great, another very prominent uh, saint, one of the Cappadocian fathers, numerous saints since. They've just been very unambiguous about it. Uh, I'll tell you another one. You know, theistic evolutionists, both before and after Darwin, they like to say, well, you know, maybe God just used the process of evolution to create the human body. But after that, you know, once he had a, a body that was basically, you know, human-like, then God divinely infused a soul into him at that time. You know, you've probably heard this theory spouted off by some people. Obviously, they did not get that anywhere from Scripture because Scripture does not even get a hint of anything like that. But, you know, people invent this idea. Well, it's interesting. You can go all the way back to the 6th century under St. Justinian the Great, the emperor there in, you know, what we sometimes call Byzantium, now the Eastern Roman Empire. And in the year 553... At the Fifth Ecumenical Council, and that should make everybody's ears perk up, you know, if you're Orthodox, you know, an Ecumenical Council, that's kind of a big deal. And anyway, it was explicitly stated twice at the Fifth Ecumenical Council that the soul and the body were created at the same time, simultaneously, and not one after the other. Now... You know, when people study the ecumenical councils, usually they focus on the first one and they focus on, you know, the deity of Christ or they focus on the fourth one and, you know, our uh, tension with the Coptics and where they'll focus on the seventh and they'll talk about icons. A lot of people don't realize that there is this statement at the fifth ecumenical council that says that the human soul and the human body were created simultaneously. So, you know, that right there makes it pretty difficult to explain how you could have billions of years of gradual evolution. And then later as an afterthought, God puts a soul in us. You know, that just, it really does not fit. Not only the patristic voice, but the, you know, the ecumenical council itself. And then keep in mind, 
The sixth ecumenical council ratified the fifth and the seventh ecumenical council also ratified the fifth. So you have, you know, the agreement of three ecumenical councils that the human body and the human soul were created simultaneously. And, and keep in mind, you know, this, this state, Young Earth creation statement from St. Ephraim and numerous other early church fathers, you know, the obvious understanding of scripture whenever you open it up and you read the first few chapters of Genesis, uh, you know, this statement from the Fifth Ecumenical Council, all of these things predate Protestantism by way more than a thousand years. So, you know, so for young earth creationism to be, for it to be Protestant, you know, Martin Luther would have had to have been really, really busy. He would have had to have invented a time machine. Uh, he would have had to raced back to, uh, <laughs> not even him, because he wasn't a, he, he wasn't an evolutionist. So you, you'd have to have some modern Protestants that somehow invented a time machine and went back and, and uh, you know, <laughs> poisoned some of the, the early church fathers somehow, which is obviously ridiculous. So... Whenever somebody says, hey, to be, you know, preaching through the scripture verse by verse and to be having half hour long and hour long sermons, that's a Protestant thing to do. Well, no, it's not. St. John Chrysostom was doing it much early, earlier than Protestantism even existed. Similarly, to argue for young earth creation, a literal six day creation of the world, you know, to argue for the impossibility of man's body and man's soul being created at different times. These are not Protestant arguments. These are historic, ancient, traditional, Orthodox Christian arguments voiced by the consensus of the saints. Now, if some modern Protestants happen to stumble over the truth and they accidentally happen to get some things right, that's great, but they're not the origin of it. Uh, they, they came a long time after the fact. What's interesting to me, Father, is just the um, just the fact that, you know, the impact these false beliefs at least have on society. We've noticed in the Western world, at least when, when society has moved to this kind of consensual, uh, not consensual, but a consensus view that evolution, Darwinism, is, is the underlying fact, and Genesis can be kind of moved aside and made a <clears throat> sort of proclaimed a myth, which, you know, needs to be needs to be kind of taken as such and not taken as fact i think it kind of has led to dire consequences not just in of course the the realm of theology which has of course affected negatively um western denominations of christianity very heavily but also affected the science ethics morality it, it's led to abominations uh, for example such as abortion and the legitimization of these various i suppose transgressions in terms of in terms of the sciences and uh, like i just wanted to mention for the listeners those thinking well what 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 could possibly be the negative outcomes of believing darwinism evolution natural you know this uh idea that uh you know well maybe it's a teal legumen on you know possibly maybe if they just believe these falsehoods they can just get along and their mindset can kind of realign with their christianity and they can still go to church and attend liturgy and have a coherent worldview well one of the outcomes i think is one of a very a very palpable outcome and something that they can expect that will occur in their societies is is for example what's happening in ukraine at the moment where you have this incredible synthesis of uh, I suppose right-wing groups, it, no matter how 
you know how minor they are you have these far-right neo-nazi groups which of course uh, solidify their ideas based on this pagan idea and even they mold their theories with this uh, idea of ukrainian supremacy over other nations in particular the russians they base this on darwinism specifically and there's the synthesis in ukraine at the moment and you know this is kind of a very contemporary issue there's a synthesis of that alongside this liberal progressivism which is why we see people of say the alphabet community as well as very progressive western circles supporting ukraine and even actively in ukraine itself it's having certain parades uh, certain things are being taught in schools and you'd think the left and the right couldn't come to a certain agreement well in a relative sense in the ukraine but they can and in fact it all comes from this idea that morality ethics are all subjective they all come from this evolutionary sort of natural so to speak basis and god really isn't involved here in this picture and so you have these two it's almost like a horseshoe theory of negativity occurring in real time and almost in like a, as a, in a test tube example of this 30-year state the <clears throat> the the state of ukraine in which we see a post-Soviet state kind of devolve into the madness we see today with you know possible persecution of orthodoxy coming just around the corner. And this, of course, is not just because of you know their belief in Darwinism, but <clears throat> for the most part, their uh, agreement with the theory and the fact that no nobody is there to contradict it, at least in in the in the larger you know sectors of society. And unfortunately, just the as we all spoke about the lack of education on the subject and you know due to you know soviet communist the communist yoke i suppose over russia over ukraine this has prevented education on the subject so you know in fact there aren't really people there with the knowledge and with the resources to address these you know falsehoods so just so people understand how pertinent and how relevant these issues are to geopolitics in particular it has a direct influence especially on what right-wing people and left-wing people believe and where those beliefs come from, okay? So that's also important to keep in mind. So the question I had, Father, was a bit on a lighter, on a lighter note related to archaeology and geology, the subjects of dinosaurs, because if evolution can be discarded, at least from the get-go, from the human perspective, how... Is there any is there any mention in these amongst these three tomes of this subject which keeps coming up? I suppose when you're attending, say, a dinosaur museum, which Moscow is very famous for, and you know Russians have a lot of uh, you know bones of mammoths and tusks and all these things, and the subject of dinosaurs of at least perhaps not of human evolution, but of the animal sort, is there any mention of that? And does the book address it in any sort of capacity? Yes, yes, there is some uh, there is some addressing of that. A lot of what I've read on the scientific angle in this book focuses more on you know the origin of life itself, which you know in prebiotic conditions, you know even origin of life scientists, as they're called, will admit you know in prebiotic conditions there is no RNA, there is no DNA yet. <laughs> it doesn't exist yet, and so you can't even argue for evolution. At that stage, it's not even, you know, even from a Darwinian perspective, there's no arguing that, you know, this carbon and hydrogen and oxygen somehow reproduced and evolved to the point that it became DNA and RNA and a living cell. You know, so the the hurdles that you have to, to jump through to argue that somehow with no intelligence, with no divine guidance, all these random chemicals somehow just self-ordered and, uh, you know, out of nothing created this, you know, information stored in the DNA and, and other structures in the cell and gave us the first living cell. It's just, you know, absolutely 
impossible. So he spends a lot of time on that. Uh, he also focuses on microbiology and you know the irreducible complexity argument of uh, Dr. Michael Behe and just the impossibility of you know some of these super complex, uh, highly ordered structures in in the cells, you know, arising by by mere chance, the impossibility of that happening. But yes, he also spends some time. You know, he himself is a trained geologist, so he does certainly spend time with the fossils. He spends time on the radiometric dating. And so there, there is really on, on everything, on the, the origin of life question, on the irreducible complexity argument for complex structures in the cell, for the fossils, for dating, for, for geology. He really covers all the bases, and he, and he does a good job of it. Now, I will say this, just for listeners, you know, some people are going to say, man, this is really interesting. I'm looking forward to reading this. I'm going to contribute. I want to read these books, but you know, it's going to take, it's going to take a couple of years, you know, even if we get full funding, if we, you know, and then the, it has been going very well so far. So I'm hopeful that we will get complete funding, but even if we get it, it just takes a long time to translate 1,380 pages of text from Russian into English and then to publish them. And so in the meantime, um, there is a particular, you know, specifically on that question of fossils and uh, geology, there's a specific video that I want to recommend to listeners. It was put out by some Protestants, but unlike some of the materials I've seen, this particular work, it was really well done. It was very high quality, both in production and also in the scientific underpinnings of it. And it just came out fairly recently, just the, within the past few years. Dr. Del Tackett, he put out a video, a documentary called Is Genesis History? Question mark. Is Genesis History? And, you know, for over 20 years, I've been reviewing the literature. I've been reading a number of books and articles on this topic on both sides. And, you know, honestly, just to give somebody, uh, you know, about a one hour introduction to the problems and the reasons why, you know, the standards, you know, quote unquote, scientific answer, you know, really fails to answer the, the questions about geology and fossils and the dating. This, this really does about the best job of any documentary that I've seen. And I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. So if you look at the fossil record. You know, a mistake that a mistake that some creationists have made is just to be dismissive of it. That oh yeah, there's bones in the rocks, but that doesn't mean anything. We just need to trust the Bible. Yes, of course, we need to trust the Bible. Yes, we need to trust the saints. But God gave us eyes and ears and minds, and yes, there are bones in the rocks. And God gave us creation as something to reveal Himself to us. You know, God did not give us creation to deceive us. He did not, you know, he didn't hide, uh, you know, he didn't hide fake bones in there to confuse us and to drive us towards, towards the devil or to test our faith. If Genesis is true history, then if we do true science, you know, if we actually look at what is observable and testable and we study what we see in the rocks, we should find, uh, you know, not not a different story entirely. We shouldn't find billions of years, but we should find a corroboration of the Genesis account, including the flood of Noah. 
in this particular documentary, uh, it points out that really, if you look at the geological record, it's it's impossible. It's impossible to account for the the geological column, you know, the the strata of fossils that we see and the strata of rocks that we see, you know, in, for example, in the Grand Canyon, uh, unless you admit that there was a global flood, you know, a, the flood of Noah is not an embarrassment. Uh, it's not something that Christians should look at and say, oh man, you know, I, I feel like, I feel like I'm believing in fairy tales because I believe God created the heavens and the earth. And I believe that there was a, you know, eight people on a boat with a bunch of animals and there's a global flood and there's no evidence of it. Actually, if you look at the geological column, there is plenty of evidence that Noah's flood is the primary thing that laid down about the first two thirds of that geological column. And there's many, many data points, but what are two things that we could look at and say, look, just these two things alone point to the fact that this was done very quickly and did not take billions of years. Well, for one thing, they have done enough geological digs all over the United States, all over Europe and all over Asia to know that there are certain geological strata, certain geological formations that occur not only locally over 10 or 20 miles or even 100 miles, but spanning hundreds and hundreds of miles where you know that over this wide this wide range of maybe half of the United States or two thirds of the United States, if you dig down a certain uh, distance that you are going to run into predictable layers. And in those layers, you're going to hit predictable types of rocks and predictable types of fossils. And it's fairly uniform across those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. And what that means is, is that all of that had to be laid down at the same time. And a number of these layers don't only occur in North America, but simultaneously occur in Europe, which means that they had to be laying down the same layers, the same rocks, the same uh, fossils at the same time over multiple continents at the same time. And, you know, of course, the scientists tried to get around that by saying, well, it was just a very gradual depositing, you know, over a very long period of time. And, and so eventually we got these layers. But the problem you have there is, is life itself. So when you have, you know, even, even today at the bottom of the ocean, at the bottom of seas, at the bottom of lakes, you, you do have some sedimentation occurring. But simultaneously with that, you have all these critters. <laughs> you know, you have uh, plants and critters. So you have uh, these little animals that will burrow down into it and burrow back up and dig. And then, you know, if it spends any amount of time above the water after water recedes, you have erosion, which you'll you'll have a you know you'll have a creek or a lake or or not a, a lake you'll have a creek or a river cut out a swath of that, and you'll have trees grow and put roots down. You'll have weather come and beat away part of that, and so both underwater and above water, anytime you have a very long passage of time. What you do not end up with is something completely flat. What you end up with is something that's very, very bumpy. Bumpy from erosion, uh, bumpy from earthquakes, bumpy from tree roots, bumpy from animals digging down and digging up and making all of their little burrows. And what is really striking about uh, several of the geological layers that cover hundreds and hundreds of miles is that you'll have like almost this knife edge from one layer to the next. And you'll find 
very, very little, almost never will you have a case where between these two particular layers, you look and you see, oh, there were, there were hills there, or oh, a river cut through there, and so it's this really jagged edge. Uh, or, oh, look, you know, these, these little animals burrowed up and down and went through the different layers. No, you'll have this deposition of one layer and then not enough time passing for animals to do much of any damage to it and not enough time passing for you know, er any serious erosion to take place to make it bumpy like you would see on a normal you know, piece of land in any, most parts of the United States. And instead, you'll have this layer laid down and then immediately after it, another layer, and then immediately after it, another layer. And so when this happens... You know, what that means to the trained eye of a scientist is, you know, there could not have been very much time in between the laying down of one layer and the laying down of the next. And, you know, to get into the weeds, obviously, we would need to go into much more detail and, and respond to a number of papers that have been written on the topic. But just just in a nutshell, that's the type of that's the type of evidence. And what's nice about that particular documentary is they're not just explaining it like you're hearing now in audio but you're seeing it with your own eyes. I mean, on this documentary, they actually, you know, the geologists will take you to different locations in the world and say, look, here are the rocks. Here's what we're talking about. Here's the proof. Look at it with your own eyes and you decide. And so that's really powerful. So for now, <laughs> until, until these books are fully brought over into English, I recommend people go check out that documentary and its sequels. But, but definitely, you know, I'm talking about this uh, book series. And if people could, you know, donate to the project, if people could, you know, get on board as we translate the chapters from these three volumes, we're not going to wait two years to release them. As the chapters are being translated, we're going to release them on this particular uh, substack that we have dedicated to it. And those chapters are going to be available to people that have donated to the project. So that's, you know, that's one of the little perks that we're giving. People can order the books once they're printed. But until then, you know, they're going to get early access to some of the actual chapters, too. We're going to have all of that, of course, linked below so that you can donate, you can read and watch all of the recommendations that I've talked about, that Father Joe has talked about. Uh, again, we want to make sure this is a project about bringing, you know, this idea and making this be so widely understood in the Orthodox English-speaking world that it can't, it can no longer be questioned the way that it has been by, you know, dubious actors. And Father, I love the way that you brought up the liturgy. I think for this in general, a lot of people should listen to the liturgy, listen to what the liturgy says about the world. If people want to listen to my, I'll link in below as well, my episode with Anthony of Westgate about cosmology. I think uh, cosmology, listening to the liturgy is very powerful as well. When it comes to Stuff like that, this whole when it comes to cosmology, when it comes to evolution, when it comes to scientism and all of this, it is fundamentally about, in a philosophical sense, breaking down Christian morality. And then some could say in a more literal sense, as Father Seraphim Rose talks about in Orthodoxy and the religion of the future, preparing us for a, a fake demonic space future, you know, the idea where... I don't know, like in Come Sail Away by Sticks, we get into some starship and travel to infinite infinite galaxies far away. I'm particularly skeptical of those infinite galaxies existing at all. But this the narrative of evolution gives rise to these other theories of not just the origin of life on Earth, but the origin of, you know, interplanetary life and panspermia and all these sorts of things that used to just be out of, you know, Jules Verne novels and whatnot, but now are just normal talking points on the Discovery Channel and by your kid's science teacher. So if we can cut a lot of these narratives off at the head by having 
Orthodox children, Orthodox people have a strong foundational understanding of the biblical patristic teaching of creation, then so many of these narratives, I think, can be cut off and prevented, and people can be, frankly, saved from the demonic deceptions that this world is attempting to throw at us in these in these latter days, I guess I'll say. Absolutely. I fully agree. I mean, <clears throat> I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, and all these things, it's there's a common thread. There's a common thread. You know, the Father Seraphim in Orthodoxy and the Religion of the Future, he talks about that, you know, in prior centuries, the vast majority of mankind believed in the spiritual, believed in the existence of God and in angels and in fallen spirits and demons. And so in that, in that milieu, you know, demons could simply appear to people as quote unquote gods or, you know, spiritual beings, but they've been so successful in convincing man of materialism and atheism that, you know, it's kind of hard at that point to appear to them as gods or spirits when people don't believe in those anymore. And so what do they do? They say, well, maybe there are these uh, advanced, intelligent, wonderful, amazing beings from other planets from far, far away. And the really interesting thing is if you go back and you look at like Aleister Crowley and some of the different, you know, self-consciously uh, occultic, satanistic type of people who have, you know, dug deeply into the occult and dug deeply into contact with, you know, fallen, you know, fallen demons, uh, to put it bluntly. And they've had actual encounters, you know, with, with, these, uh, with these demons and they've drawn pictures of what they've seen. It's very eerie. You know, it's almost creepy how similar that looks to what today show exactly the same picture to any American. And they're going to say, oh, that's an alien. That's what an alien looks like. And so, you know, I, I have to agree with Father Seraphim Rose that, you know, the idea that aliens appear to people and all this, you know, there's too many eyewitness accounts to chalk that up to, you know, they're all crazy. They're all superstitious. They're all, you know, on drugs or something that, some of them, yes, that may be what's going on, but at least with some people, what seems very plausible is that you have actual, living, genuine demons appearing to people, which is something that's gone on for thousands and thousands of years. And by the way, if you don't believe that, then you don't believe the New Testament because you know Jesus cast demons out of a lot of people in the New Testament. So, you know, if you're going to believe the scriptures, you've got to believe in the existence of these fallen creatures. And so these fallen creatures are still around now. They still hate man. They still want to see us separated from God. They still want to see us go to hell. And today, when they appear to people, instead of appearing as a demon, instead of appearing as some pagan god, in many cases, they claim to be aliens from some other planet. Now, that does not mean they're actually aliens from another planet. It just means that as they have always lied to man and tried to deceive man, they're still lying and deceiving man today and seeking our destruction. And the common thread through all of this is the destruction of man, the destruction of man's soul, the destruction of man's belief in God. Now, we've already talked about how you know belief in molecules to man evolution undermines the new testament undermines the christian faith destroys belief in god how do you know how do how does this idea of alien life do that well in much the same way 
because you know if you have aliens on some other planet that are intelligent just like we are well they could not possibly be descendants of adam but if they're not descendants of adam then does that mean that adam's sin did not affect them that they didn't fall or if they did fall if they did sin in some way how can they be redeemed because we know from the new testament that jesus is a descendant of adam so if jesus is not in any way connected with or related to these so-called alien life forms how can his death and resurrection do anything to help them so you know it starts out seeming like oh what's the big deal you know we just believe that there's these these other intelligent beings on other planets and it's it's cool if it's real and even if it's not real it's just it's just stories you know what's the big deal well the big deal is just like evolution it's it's chipping away at the foundation of your faith it's undermining the very idea the very idea of all men all people that we recognize as people being descended from adam being connected together in him falling into sin with him but then being redeemed from that sin by the second adam who is christ and the moment you bring you know intelligent beings from another planet into that mix you throw that entire paradigm into question. You undermine the entire thing. And so it's a big problem, and it's, you know, again, it's similar goals. The demons are trying to deceive. They're trying to undermine our faith in Christ and undermine our trust in the Scriptures. Well, and it's just these overarching meta-narratives meant to so seep into the fabric of our society that children and those seeking, like, they just— they don't even feel that they can deconstruct them, so they just write off certain beliefs to begin with. And ultimately, those beliefs, as we mentioned throughout the rest of the show, believe, regard the actual you know, death and how it came into the world and thus ultimately affecting how we're saved from it. So this isn't just some, again, theologumenon or something that can be questioned like that. But before I hand it over to Dimitri to start to wrap us up here and maybe say a few other things. I want to talk about, the, we mentioned the dinosaurs earlier, and I think it's, we, I'd be remiss not to bring up dragons and the fact that they do, according to the tradition of our saints, exist in the eyes of the Orthodox Church. And we'll link some quotes and some threads in the links below. We'll have a lot of links this episode, but I want to read from St. Barsanufius of Optina. This is a more recent recounting, you know, this is from the 19th century. He says, I also had to personally hear from the soldiers stationed at the Kantaza station, 70 versts from Mulin, that they often saw two years ago how a huge winged dragon crawled out of one mountain cave, terrifying them, and again hid in the depths of the caves. Since then, they have not seen him, but this proves that the stories of the Chinese and Japanese about the existence of dragons are not at all fiction or a fairy tale, although European natural scientists and ours with them deny the existence of these monsters. But you never know what is denied only because it does not fit the yardstick of our concept. So I think, you know, this is just a perfect example of what we've been talking about, that even if, like, like, even accepting all of the presuppositions of modern scientism, there are still just fantastical things of this world that are completely unexplained that, you know, these vain naturalists of the world would, could only hope to have even a cursory knowledge of. So to put your trust in them to give you an overarching system of the world or a system of creation, let alone, of course, a system of ethics and religion, I think that would be beyond foolish. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I'm glad you brought up dragons. It's a very interesting topic because you know, it's another example of things where you don't even need evidence. All you have to do is just say the word dragon and your average 
you know, quote unquote, educated American will look at that and scoff and say, oh, well, obviously that's fairy tales. And yet you have these eyewitness accounts like the one you just mentioned from, you know, St. Barsanufius of Optina. You know, you have the Chinese calendar, you know, every year they've got the the year of the, I forget all the different animals, but the year of the snake, the year of the rat, the year of the chicken or whatever. And all these different years are real, everyday, normal animals that everybody knows about. And the only exception is the year of the dragon. Now, <laughs> why, you know, if they wanted to have the year of the the year of the unicorn and the year of the, you know, if, if they wanted to come up with you know the year of the minotaur or something like that, then maybe would say okay, it's just they're playing games. But why would they have all of their different Chinese years named for mundane animals? And hey, let's pick a mythical beast just for one of those years. You know, that's because they didn't think it was mythical. And this Father Constantine Buffeyev. You know, the scientist, the trained geologist, the guy who wrote this uh, three-volume set uh, looking at the science and looking at the theology of creation. It's interesting. There's actually a fourth book that he wrote, not connected with these three. And Lord willing, you know, I want to get this translation project done first. I want to get these three books done. But this fourth book that he wrote is just really, really interesting. It's a full book dedicated to interactions that the saints have had with animals throughout history. And he looks both at scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, and he looks at the lives of the saints. So the Christian saints that have lived in the 2000 years, you know, since the writing of the New Testament. And he looks at, you know, he looks at cats, he looks at horses, he looks at all these different animals. And he actually dedicates an entire chapter to dragons. And it's not just one or two obscure quotes it's page after page after page after page of all these different orthodox saints throughout history that have you know interacted directly with dragons and so i'm hoping lord willing once this translation project is done that maybe we can do another fundraiser and bring this book in english as well and i think ultimately hopefully uh work such as this will promote I suppose the the fullness of the Orthodox worldview in in its readers, both those who are experienced in Christianity and those who have practiced for many years, as well as newcomers to the faith and those simply inquiring or even <clears throat> looking to Christianity from other faiths, like for example, even other religions completely or denominations. You know, this book does provide, I suppose, evidence of the fact that Orthodoxy does have the most coherent answer to the challenges of today, especially the challenges from these false philosophies of science. Darwinism, etc., these evolutionary theories which wish to, of course, dismount the traditional worldview of people and simply uh, transplant it with this uh, science fiction reality. So I think uh, it's really important for you know this, this work, Father. We of course pray that you get it done, and you know, God willing, God gives you strength and and the uh, and the time, of course, to of course complete this project because it's much needed, especially in the world. I. The only analogy I guess I could make, at least in recent times in the English language, would be the book that covers, of course, the the, light, the departure of the soul and the toll houses question in the Orthodox Church, which is the departure of the soul according to the teaching of the Orthodox Church, that grand 1,100-page book published by the St. Anthony's Greek Orthodox Monastery in America in the English language. And this seems to be the equivalent of that, perhaps even... I don't want to say more relevant, but uh, at least more pertinent to today's age, or even has a more missionary apologetic leaning to it. And it is very, it well, is very dense. All three tomes are going to be, you know, 
incredibly intense for the readers and, and of course the, there will need to be some sort of paraphrasing from parent to to child in terms of you know this book isn't isn't necessarily for children but for the learned adult it absolutely is a must-have and it is a must-read and we appreciate the fact that you father have taken on this task and father constantine Buffet, of course kudos to him and we will follow him very closely he of course was lovely enough to publish the book completely in russian uh, almost, you know, you can purchase it in hardcover, softcover, but you can also access it completely for free. So if any Russian speakers do want to actually read the book, we will have uh, access, you will have links to the store in Russian as well as to the website uh, from F F Father Joseph's, where wherein you could actually subscribe and donate to the project, because the project is a very grand one and it will take, as we mentioned, many years to complete in the English language. So we're looking forward to uh, following you alongside this journey, Father. Well, thank you so much. I just it's an exciting it's exciting to be part of the process. It's exciting to see. I'm just so pleased that somebody like Father Constantine, you know, has poured his life into this for over 20 years. You know, I, he was sitting here at my dining room table and I just asked him, "How long have you been working on these three books?" And he said about 20 20 years. You know, that's you know that it, it's it, yes, maybe it'll take a couple years for us to translate this into English, but it took him 20 years to compile it and to write it in the first place. And that's just such a labor of love, such a, you know, th there was no quick reward for that, but he just poured himself into it and did all that work over all that time. And and now the rest of us get to benefit from the fruits of his hard work and his prayerful labor. And uh, oh, before I forget, I think this is important. Uh, you know, I probably should have said it at the very beginning, but, you know, there's some people listening that are on the fence. There's some people that say, look, I am a Christian. I do believe in Christ. I believe he's a real person. He is God. He died for me. He rose again. I, I am, you know, I, I'm a believer. I am in the faith. But, man, you know, I, science <laughs> Science has put us, you know, has put a man on the moon. Science has given us uh, satellite TV. Science has given us computers and technology and done all of these different things. And it's based on hard evidence and observation. And man, if science tells me that, you know, what the Bible says is not true, if science tells me that what the saints says is not true, if science says that this is impossible, you know, what, what do I do with that? I just don't know what to do with that. You know, it's a very real tension. It's a very real problem. And I remember what that feels like. You know, I remember, you know, it's been, I don't know, probably 20 years ago now, but I remember going through that myself. I remember wrestling and struggling with that so much, you know, because I, I've read a lot of books by scientists and not just creation scientists. I've read many books by, you know, mainstream, atheistic, you know, secular humanists scientists i've read you know <laughs> i'm familiar with dawkins i'm familiar with just a number of writers that have you know have absolutely nothing to do with christianity <laughs> you know i've even read stephen hawking on cosmology and i understand the tension i understand that big question mark that pull because you don't want to be intellectually you don't want to check your brain at the door <laughs> you know you don't want to say oh i'm just going to be anti-intellectual i'm going to throw out all science and I think it's really important to have a clear answer for that particular objection, for that particular struggle. And it's, it's two parts. The first is this, to say that 
creation and to say that Noah's flood is against science. Well, that means one of two things. It, it either means against science properly done, you know, act, actual observation, or it means against the scientific consensus, which is a different thing entirely. So the first one, if we're actually talking about actual science, observation, measurement, testing, you know, the ability to, to repeat something, actually it's the evolutionists that have the problem. It's the origin of life scientists that have the problem. Contrary to what many people think, scientists have never created a living cell from scratch, and they've never even gotten close. They have not even gotten close to chemically building the necessary building blocks to make a cell. You know, to get into more detail about that, just hop online and Google Dr. James Tour. He does better than about anybody I've seen. It just, you know, he, he himself is a molecular biologist a synthetic biologist, and he knows how to explain these things in great detail. And he points out the fact that, you know, science, scientists have not even gotten close. We've not even made any progress, really, since Yuri and Miller back in the 1950s. And as far as evolution is concerned, you know, I'm not going to take the hours it would take to <laughs> regurgitate, you know, what's in these 1,380 pages. But uh, if you actually look at what we can observe not what we speculate or philosophize about, but what do you actually see in the rocks? What do you actually see in the fossils? What can you actually measure? Uh, it does not support the theory of evolution. The books that secular humanists write, which suggest that it does support it, they, they use a lot of logical fallacies. They even will use outright lies. And and again, that's why you need to take the time to read books like the ones that we're discussing to unpack those lies. But actual science, actual observation is never an enemy to the scriptures, and it's never an enemy to what the saints have written. So if you think it's a problem, that's why you need to read these books. <laughs> that's why you need to find out why we don't, you know, as creation, as people who believe in a young earth and who believe in creation— we are not scared of the fossils. We're not scared of the microbiology. Actually, those things help us. They don't hurt us. And so in the correct context, we encourage people to look at the science. We encourage people to look at what is actually observable. But the other objection, the idea that, well, the majority of scientists in the world today, the consensus of scientists trumps the consensus of the saints. You know, this idea that because a majority of those who reject God, a majority of those scientists who don't believe in God, hold to an atheistic understanding of evolution. Well, if that's going to be your argument, then you need to give up everything in Christianity. Because the consensus of the secular humanist atheistic scientists, you know what? Those scientists tell you that a virgin birth is impossible. Those scientists will tell you that walking on water is impossible. Those scientists will tell you that it's scientifically impossible to turn water into wine. And those scientists will tell you that it's scientifically impossible to raise the dead. And that's where I just have to agree with the Apostle Paul that if the dead are not raised, then our faith is in vain. <laughs> we need to just give up Christianity now and instead of getting up early on Sunday, we just need to party all weekend because 
if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, then, then we're believing in him for nothing. Just to be a Christian, just to be a Christian, you must believe in many, many things which are, quote unquote, scientifically impossible. You have to believe in the virgin birth. You have to believe in the miracles of Christ. You have to believe in the resurrection from the dead. And if you as a Christian can believe all of those, quote unquote, scientifically impossible things, then adding one or more two things to that list should not bother you. It's a, it's a very true thing. And a lot of people in this age struggle, you know, deconstructing the narratives that have been put up for the express purpose of keeping them in that box and not allowing them to realize that truth. And, you know, sure, it's easy because in a lot of the churches and Protestant churches, they still preach those doctrines. But in many ways, people are able to turn off their brains and not follow certain things to their logical conclusions. But ultimately, their children end up doing such and leaving the faith, which is what we've seen in the West in regards to this so many times. I want to remind everybody to check out Episode 7 of World War Now was our first conversation we had with Father Joseph, which was a great conversation. It's still very relevant today regarding the conflict in Russia, a very interesting look. And I want to give Dimitri a chance to say something before we sign off, but we're going to have everything linked below, the the fundraiser for the books, all the links that we've talked about, the info, the things that Father Joseph has recommended. It's all going to be down there, so be sure to avail yourselves of that. And we're going to ask Father Joseph to bless us and send us off here after perhaps he gives us some final words. But Dimitri, I want to make sure you ask anything you want to ask or get everything out. So, yeah, no, I, we, of course, appreciate your work, Father, and it's always good having you on. Um, hopefully this won't be the last time. And it's certainly, you know, certainly there's just too much to speak about. I think personally, I will need to wait for the book's publication in English. And I will be, of course, uh, donating more and following the Substack. you know, chapter by chapter, we'll be kind of getting through and building up my personal knowledge of exactly, you know, what the Orthodox position, what a strong Orthodox theological position is on young earth creationism and just i guess the the position of the scriptures and the tradition itself as a whole because it's not to call it young earth creationism i think is even underselling it a little bit that's just one part of the puzzle it's also you know it's also about the entire cosmos and the entire universe and it touches upon even attending liturgy every day and partaking of the sacraments and things of that nature so super relevant stuff i just wanted to say that we of course appreciate you being on our last conversation about the geopolitical issues surrounding ukraine and your life in russia that we that we you know that we recorded in november of last year it uh it really did cover a lot of really important bases from from an american's perspective in russia or i suppose now you're a technically a russian person a citizen of the federation so it's it's always uh, you know it's it's always a pleasure having you on father and we just appreciate your time well thank you so much it's an honor to be on your show I, it's a it's a podcast that i really value and appreciate i appreciate both of you and uh oh by the way i, I almost forgot uh, you know we mentioned that russian film sunstroke uh udar and i think it's important for me to mention please do not just go out on the internet and find that movie and watch it. Um, there is about a four minute adultery scene right in the middle of the movie, which I do not recommend. So to take care of that, <laughs> um, there's actually an edited version of the movie that cuts out that one scene. And this edited version that lacks that scene has English subtitles. And I actually posted that on the Substack blog about this uh, this project and this book. So, you know, there's no 
I, I don't make any income or anything off of that. It's just something that's out there for people to watch. But I would recommend watching that version of it instead of just some random version that you find online. And uh, just some parting words, I would say where this really gets practical is it really comes down to a matter of hope, you know, because, you know, we live in, we live in the real world, you know, people don't just sit around all day. At least most people don't just sit around all day thinking about creation and evolution and science and religion. You know, people are living their lives. People have hurts, they have pains, they have suffering. And, and they wonder, you know, is this, is this all there is? Is this the best that it's ever going to be? You know, is, is my suffering just going to get worse and worse? And if it is, you know, there's some people that decide to, to end everything. And it can make all the difference in the world for them, whether they believe that there is a God and that they're not here by accident. You know, because if your great, 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 great grandfather was just a rat in a, in a, in a prehistoric jungle, if your uh, earliest ancestor were ancestors were amoebas floating around in a primordial sea, then, you know, whether you kill yourself or not really doesn't matter. You know, whether somebody else ends your life really doesn't matter because there's no purpose to anything. Uh, there's no plan. And it was billions of years of death that got us to where we are today. And there'll be billions of years of more death after we die. And so what difference does it make? And that's a really hopeless, sad way to look at the world. And so if we can do the opposite, if we can say, look, don't put your kids in public schools. <laughs> don't fill their mind with this idea that they're just a cosmic accident that crawled up out of some primordial ooze. But each person, you know, each person listening to this podcast, you are a creation of God. He created you on purpose. He loves you. He created you in his image. And his goal for you is to be elevated and purified and perfected and exalted and to live for all eternity with him. We're talking absolute eternal life. That's awesome. Uh, you know, that's, there's a lot more hope in that. There's a lot more reason for living if you believe in that than if you believe that everything just, you know, just happened by accident. And so, you know, if people are listening to this, you know, they're probably not among those who are, who are atheistic, not among those who are without hope, but they probably have some family members. They have some family members that are questioning th these things. They have children who maybe, you know, have already been to some public schooling and are starting to question, you know, okay, did I, did I come from God or did I come from, from monkeys? And, you know, if people can start taking this question seriously, uh, we can start putting a lot more hope in people's hearts around the world, helping people to understand who they are in Christ and who they are, you know, redeemed by Christ and created in the image of Christ. And I believe that that can have a real effect in individual lives and even on the world stage. So this isn't just some esoteric, you know, thing for eggheads to think about and to ponder. This is something that Ultimately, at the end of the day, it affects whether each person has hope for the future or not. And so I want to pray for everybody listening. I also want to pray for, for you, Conrad and Dimitri, and for, you know, for this podcast that you do as a service to everyone. 
May the Lord bless you. May the Lord every day remind you that you are created in his image. And may the Lord have his way with you, which is to conform you in perfection to the image of Christ, to redeem you from your sins, and to make you a blessing, not only to yourself, but to others. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah.